0: We all know that the answer is always C. However, we're going to show to you that the answer is actually E, both C and D. Where C is, it depends, and D is more research is needed.
1: Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast,
2: brought to you by Spooner.
1: the most correct answer. Is it C or is it D?
0: Why, thank you, Becca. <laughs> and we have a nice crew today joining us. So Paul and Dan back, and we're joined by, obviously, our wonderful sports medicine director, Becca. Hello. Sarah Guyano is joining us today as well. Hello. And a first-time guest for us, Dr. Stacy Dalt. Dr. Dalt, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. Looking oh. forward to... Knocking your socks off, so I get invited back.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it. Setting the standards high. Very nice, um, Dr. Dahl. Do you want to give us a little just quick introduction about you and your background?
2: Absolutely. So I grew up um, playing a less than um, run of the mill sport in competitive bowling, and uh, realized that I wanted to be a physician very early. So got started in sports medicine because of my sports history and uh, doing athletic training in high school. So I went through sports medicine training and realized that uh, just like bowlers aren't well known in the athletic world, females aren't well known in the athletic world. And it is my desire to learn everything I can about all of those unique sports as well as those I guess we'll call them unique female athletes who are just athletes.
0: Well, I love it. like we said, as we've talked about in some podcasts before, more research is desperately needed for the female athlete. And particularly today, we're gonna to focus on the adolescent athlete, a little bit on the boy side, some of the information crossover, but in particular, the adolescent female athlete. So we have a good group of passionate people in this room that are all very interested in learning more about this topic. But in particular, let's just do a little quick hitter. Why is this an important topic and why do we need to care about this?
1: Well, I think it's twofold because as Dr. Dalt mentioned, right, we're not just going to talk about female athletes. We're also going to talk about male athletes. And the truth is, is the youth athlete in general is a hot topic. We do a lot of things with them as far as overworking them, having them in a lot of sports, but we don't really understand how to help them develop and become good athletes and honestly just good movers. And then when we talk about the female athlete, and it's a whole other layer of things we do not understand, Um, and how do we just take what research we do have and apply that and make it so we can have them be as healthy as they can be as they grow up because ultimately that's really what's important. Can they become healthy adults through athletics, through movement, um, so that's why I think it's an important topic. So for
3: me, it it's probably a little personal because of the age of my children and watching them go through their physical education in school and then their uh, development through sports. And, you know, we were talking a little bit, you know, earlier this probably – winter about you know the loading of the youth athlete and then we had a conversation with Dr. Dahl at our huddle sports medicine conference really about this and she's been feeding us lots of incredible research that has opened my brain even more of how much really is unknown and poor or little research done um, not that there aren't some good guidelines and some recommendations that we'll that we'll talk about either in this podcast or another one but just, I mean, for me, it's a little bit on the selfish side, so I can help guide my children and my children's friends and their parents along, you know, kind of movement literacy that hopefully will fulfill will a lifetime of health.
0: I love what you're saying, and I feel like there's been a lot of fear previously out there to be able to know what it is to load an athlete. You know we, we were talking before, and Dr. Galt mentioned the paradigm shift, the understanding what does loading look like? What is it? How do we help our athletes be successful? To do exactly what Becca said. Be both successful as being an athlete, more importantly, just healthy as far as life is concerned, helping them grow and develop efficiently. And it's it's really cool. We're seeing some research out there where certain individuals... Um, are starting to recognize the importance to do resistive training. We'll talk like Dan said about what that really means as we move forward. But I've been seeing some research. They looked at artistic. They looked at dancers in particular, where both the coaches and the athletes recognize the importance of building muscular strength. And this is a group that historically there's been a fear around that, whether there's an injury-based fear or a bulking-based fear that's going to limit the mobility that is essential for these athletes. So we're starting to see that, again, paradigm shift come around, we have a ways to go both on the research side and especially the implementation side of how we can effectively do this to help our kiddos become strong kiddos and great athletes.
2: Expanding on that a little bit more, I think there are multiple aspects to a paradigm shift. There's a saying in medicine that kids aren't just little adults. And that's 100% true when it comes to athletes too. Uh, Children as athletes should not be treated like little adults. We need to approach them completely differently. And there is a long-time standing cultural belief that boys don't need to be taught how to move and how to be an athlete, and that girls are not inherently as, as good at sports because they need to be taught. But in reality, it's about how we approach females versus males at young age. And everybody needs to be taught how to move. And the younger that we start to teach appropriate love for movement, as well as safe and proper technique for movement, the more likely we are to have much greater capabilities later in life and less risk for injury. A greater tendency towards health overall. And then particularly when we look at resistance training, we need to get away from the idea that the only form of resistance training or strength training that is effective is big jerky movements like Olympic cleans and jerks and understand that resistance training is a much safer thing that we can do at much younger ages than we ever thought was possible.
0: I So let's kind of jump into that understanding of movement and then the misunderstanding of what you said is that some people don't need to be taught, whereas we know when we go through puberty, everyone is having a proprioceptive challenge. But Dan, give us a little bit of an intro of kind of what some of the research says as far as movement needs are for adolescents.
3: Yeah. So, you know, in, in adolescence, it really talks about we have the ability to load them and, and put on some strength and not just bulk but strength to control their body Uh, you know that the the science is resounding that if an athlete or an individual jumps they're going to accept anywhere from three to six point eight times their body weight so when they hit adolescence and they're involved in any sort of jumping task regardless of what that is related to in any sport can their body withstand that force that they need to absorb so I think in the adolescent age, you know, that the literature supports the loading versus in the younger age, it really supports the utilization of plyometrics. And, and, and as Dr. Dalt said, kind of that movement literacy and understanding how to move their body in space, which in theory is going to, because of mass and momentum and the impact of gravity and the impact of ground reaction forces, they're going to they're develop neuromuscular adaptations that serve them better moving forward. Um, that's kind of at a, at, at a high overview, but you know where that difference is. Also, if we think about the impact of the proprioceptive system, like Paul mentioned, when they hit pro- puberty, that they're going to have a, a decrease in that. Well, then maybe we need to alter the amount of weight that they have, the the amount of range of motion that they move that load through. Maybe it's a, it's a more controlled range of motion. If they're doing some sort of squat, goblet squat, whatever, front squat, it's only going to a certain height of a box where their rear end touches the box, and then they come back up versus taking it to 120 degrees of knee flexion, which may put too much stress through soft tissue and joint growth plate,
1: etc.
4: I think you make a good point talking about the proprioceptive stuff. And just to go ahead and jump on the proprioceptive soapbox that I think we're all about to get on, But one of the things that puts females at greater risk for ACL injuries, and if you look into the research, you'll see that females over time are up to eight times more likely to tear their ACLs, and when they're younger, it's even higher. And one of those big risk factors is that females versus males tend to have greater impaired trunk control in space over their lower extremities, and it puts them in those bigger ACL risk positions. And so... I think that just highlights that statistic and those differences really shows that early on we have to teach these athletes to control their trunk and space earlier. And not just girls. That's going to be a male's injury position as well. Girls maybe just have it more likely than males. So we can't – it's huge. We have to teach kids how to control their body in space.
0: I, w- I always think of like the stereotypical gangly kid that goes out for basketball trials, and you have just the flailing limbs all over the place. Is, and uh, they uh, don't, is that is that a This a is not a harking to- back to my own history. Shush you! I, sure? trust you. <laughs> I control my limbs at all times. Thank you. <laughs> But it is the truth, right? It's like we said, there's a lot of challenges this. So then the question becomes, what does this look like? What does training this movement look like? And how do we help individuals be effective when we know that all boys and girls are going to most likely experience this challenge?
2: And if you could imagine being that gangly kid going out for basketball, but never have been taught or, or practiced the fundamentals of basketball before... You, you can start to see how the female athlete might even immediately shy away from putting herself out there to try to go out for a sport because of especially as she goes through puberty a little bit younger than her male counterparts, that her body's changing and she already doesn't feel confident, but then she doesn't like the way she thinks she looks moving. And on top of that, instead of being able to adjust to what we already have taught our brain and nerves to do and have muscle memory to do, that now we just have to learn a completely new skill on top of that. Uh, we learn it in bad patterns, and that's probably why we see, the, uh, among other anatomy differences too, why a big, there's a big difference in injury risk for particular injuries in females and males.
3: Well, I think you bring up a great point there because again, looking, this isn't all about my children, but it's the phase of life that I'm in right now and just watching how the different ages move and the way that they might be coached to move or not coached to move. uh, I think there's some interesting things there that you bring up that, you know, rather than trying to correct something when they're 14, 15, 16, where all of a sudden now they're, as Sarah said, you know, they're eight times more likely to have an ACL injury we start that at an earlier age and we help them just develop overall global movement literacy and and body weight control they're going to start to build those patterns in a more successful way because they're challenged in different directions and 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 i think some of it comes down to i've kind of gone down this path since the huddle and hearing a couple of the sports psychologists talk on the language at which we speak to encourage kids to move and that certain things aren't Punishment. Running shouldn't be a punishment like it was when Paul and I played sports back in the good old days and he was the gangly kid, you know, super long flailing arms. Uh, but like that, that running was a punishment. Well, now it should be, you No, know, this is a part of setting the foundation for long-term health as well as developing the, the necessary neuromuscular control to handle those stresses that are placed from running and then changing direction and then changing direction again and then diving and then jumping and just like all of those things that come from letting kids be kids. But having the language of coaching behind that to help them realize that there's going to be things they encounter that are hard. And the only way that they're going to get better at that is to continue to try and the mistakes are okay. So that they don't see that every time they do something wrong, they get screamed and yelled at. And then there's then, then there's a whole other psychological component, which I don't think we're going to get into because that's even bigger task, but like thinking of all of those things that comes back to, well, now I don't want to do this because I'm afraid of getting screened at for doing something incorrectly.
2: And on top of that, I would even say, if we think about this, when it comes down to brain and body development, we already know that children who experience a catastrophic brain injury, for example, are much more likely to recover full function than an adult or even a adolescent. So if we look at how a typical male athlete gets started in doing movement and athletic things, it's because they're encouraged to do things and push things at, at very young ages, below below 6, right? And so we start to, we get an active start, we start to learn to move, we, we learn the fundamentals of agility, balance, and coordination. We don't necessarily put our girls in those same situations. They're maybe taught to, and this is really old school, but taught to sit pretty, look good, be quiet, not get dirty, not get muddy, not have the same kind of fun, but but getting out and then especially as we get a little bit older 6 to 8 for females and 6 to 9 year olds for ma- to 9 year old for males like that is when we should really be learning movement patterns because it's fun and we we highlight how fun it is to learn new things and again if we don't start pushing our female athletes to do this at the our female children to do this at the same at the same pace as males then they aren't going to keep up, and it's because we're not teaching their brain how to do these things and and how to make those connections and learn how to adapt so that we can have the fundamentals that we can turn into sport movement later.
0: I'm curious. You talked some good age ranges there and hit some really important things, like making it fun and getting the, the movement understanding going. How do you, or do you have certain suggestions for how someone could go about finding a good way to help introduce movement around those ages and make it fun for the kid?
2: Number one is model it. The best thing that we can do for our children as parents, as a coach, as an aunt, an uncle, somebody who loves them and it's important, they're important in our lives, is to show them that movement is fun. And if they don't like the particular thing we're doing, that you can show them ways that it can be a little bit more interesting, whether that's adding games or appropriate incentives <laughs> uh, uh, along the way. A- and not a bartering system, right? Not if you'll do this, then you get this. Or if you don't do this, then you're going to have punishment. Like, then you'll have to run more. But but something that they really buy into. And then more than anything, though, Getting out and being with them because developing a relationship with children, again, whether you're a parent or a coach or just another loved one, an an interested, motivated bystander appropriately, again, then fostering that relationship and doing something together is going to be a great way to communicate and learn other things and, and open doors to a lot of other things, but also kids want to be like us. They want to be like dad, they want to be like mom, they want to be like big brother. And so if we give them a way to get involved, and even if it's day-to-day things, just making a new game that makes you jump over things and walk along the curb and and hopscotch and not stepping on cracks, like all of those little things we've done as a kid that were lots of fun and had songs to go with them or not, those are ways that we teach ourselves those things.
0: Oh, and Dan, you were just kind of giving us a story of someone with your own kids. And now, like you said, don't want to use own kids as your only example, but it's an important relevant example for it. What are some things that you did with your kids, both what are their ages and what did you do, to kind of help them to enjoy the activity and be consistent with what's going to be beneficial for them?
3: So to be completely honest with you, it's bringing their friends together and having something that's organized and... I try to be thought well thought out when I'm planning these group movement sessions of something that's going to have a little bit of fun, that's going to have some movement literacy, some that's going to have something that's going to push them a little bit, and it's going to push some of them more than others based on the range that they have in their um, athletic movement literacy. And then, you know, something that's going to involve a little bit of competition whether it's, you know, who's the first to sprint across the line, but then encouraging the people who are after them so that they see that they really are um developing this this camaraderie and this work ethic as a group um and that nothing is seen as punishment. It, it's interesting because um with my oldest two, they're eleven and a half and nine and a half. Um not you know they're very different children obviously and, and one of them is motivated to work by himself, where the other one, it is very much a struggle to work by himself versus when you put him in a group dynamic, the the, the one who struggles by himself thrives. He does fantastically. And the other one, it's a little bit harder because he's a little bit more distractible. And so he loses focus and then his effort level drops. And the one thing that I try and stress with them is effort is really the only thing that I care about. You're not going to get in trouble if you're giving me effort. I don't care if your footwork gets crossed up. I don't care if you jump the wrong direction, if you move the wrong direction. If your effort that is there and you are going at 100%, if that's what the task requires, that's the thing that matters. And for the one that likes to train a little bit more individually, his effort struggles a little bit more in the group dynamic, which is fascinating, again, from a psychology standpoint. Um, but that's what I found to be successful is putting them together in a group with their peers, where they can have a little bit of fun and challenge each other a little bit.
2: And whether it's a group of peers that are the same age or not, uh, we talked about this in some different ways as well. But particularly in your example right now, tag is one of the best things that we can do as kiddos to to learn all of these things. You have to stop. You have to change direction. You have to you have to plan things out. So. Uh, even the mental development, like how am I going to get somebody who maybe has more skill than I do? But also as an adult facilitating these, what we can do is find ways to make the rules such that nobody has a clear-cut advantage. So, for example, we have a younger kid who just isn't as fast because his legs aren't as long, regardless of what his focus is. Um, And so you change the sport, uh, you change the tag from one person is it and has to get somebody else to be it to one person is it and also has to protect his little brother, for example. And all of a sudden you're creating a team and different camaraderie despite still competing and you're able to teach, again, something that's going to be important long term for team sports is that just because we are competing doesn't mean that we can't also look out for each other. And when we look out for each other, then we often get better outcomes overall.
0: And just to kind of circle back a bit, you know, Dan, you talked before some of the research and everything we're hearing here is very body weight based and plyometric based, right? Fun, active, moving, understanding where your body's moving in space and then getting the forces through it like Dan spoke to before when you run, when you jump, when you hop, whatever it is, but not having to load. So we talked before about resistance not always being putting a true weight-based load through the individual. This is where this comes into play. Every example so far has been a plyometric-based, jump-based, body-weight-based component, especially in those prepubescent ages or depending on where they are developmentally. This is what research suggests, correct, Dan, is this is a good place to start the kids to get those neural adaptations, and you can be very successful with them at that point.
2: Particularly learning the fundamentals of movements. If we want children, adolescents, athletes to have a good movement pattern when we add load to it, the best time to learn how to move is going to be when our brain is, it knows that it's rewiring all the time already, right? And so in in those very young age groups, yes, it should be fun-based and it should be life skill-based, but for example, a squat is something we do every single day. And when we get older and lose muscle and can't get up out of a chair anymore, that's a major impact on our life and a fall risk, right? So if we learn that better when we're younger, we're going to have better capability to hold on to that longer, especially if, if as we get older, we use that good base To add some load and add extra muscle, that means we have a higher peak velocity and we have just a higher, healthier peak, longer likely pattern of maintaining it. And therefore, we, we don't lose as much over time and we have more even if we do lose over time as well.
0: And for those who may have missed our uh, female athlete podcast just a couple previously, Becca, can you remind individuals the main reasons why girls drop out of sports and how some of this could be utilized to help them stay in sports and be motivated in that for a longer period of time?
1: So there's many reasons why females drop out of sports, but some of the biggest ones tend to be when they do get menstruation, just not talking to them about that, you know, Sarah talked about the proprioception and the inability to kind of control the trunk. That likely comes along with some of those hormonal changes that they have. And so they just feel honestly self-conscious about continuing sport because we're not talking to them about those things that are happening to their body. And so if we're introducing them to movement early on, If we're talking to them about just what's going to happen to their body, these are the things that will help them stay in sport as they get older. Because we want them to continue through sport, as we've talked about, to remain healthy adults and to be able to control their movement patterns and do those things in a way that is a little bit more difficult, well, a lot more difficult, honestly, if they drop out of sport and are not active during those age ranges.
0: And like Dr. Dalt spoke to a little bit earlier too, especially as girls go through puberty, your changes happening, they might not be comfortable with their body and how it moves. I'm also curious, Becca or Sarah, you know, you mentioned the importance of getting them comfortable with movement, but you hear like stereotypical promoted components of like women aren't typically in weight rooms as much, especially as a female ATC. I'm sure you had many times you've come across where it was a territory like, oh, you look so comfortable. Or, Why are you comfortable in the weight room? Or, Why wouldn't I be comfortable in the weight room? But getting the comfort piece here, like how do we help our girls be comfortable with the movement components and being able to train and continue to not fall behind, like Dr. Dalton said, but be comfortable in those sports training environments?
1: Well, and um- Part of it is, like, we just don't do it. So we talk a lot about equality in sport. but We have to talk about equity as well. Like, are we doing these same things with our females and male athletes? I would say to you it's gotten a little bit better, but we're still far behind where they need to be. They also face different social pressures. So, unfortunately, what we're doing is we're saying to them, oh, you're not going to bulk up, and they're, like, starting to get the idea that lifting weights is not creating bulk but they're getting social pressure, oh, go do it, and you'll lose weight. We don't just talk to them about moving and being healthy. We always have to involve their weight in there somehow, and that is another huge factor that just takes away from their ability to really understand why these things are important to their body, not about losing weight, not about bulking up, just being healthy and being more active and having better movement.
2: I completely agree that having an image focused approach to anything whether we're trying to make it seem better to a female or not and males as well but we know a lot of times if if we look at how to make the best argument that it is not to bring up the counterpoint right so so let's not bring something up that maybe somebody didn't think about before Let's make sure our girls are comfortable by asking them, what do you need? It might be as simple as, I don't want to wear light-colored shorts because my menses are still incredibly irregular and I don't know when they're going to come. And, And it might be, and it often is, especially when we look at how we treat male, at any age, male versus female athletes, at any activity level, at any skill level, we have our females ask us and make them ask the question, what do we need to do, what, or how are we doing this, or, or teach me to be better, but we offer advice to our male counterparts immediately. Whether it's mom or dad or whoever, if, if our little, little boy Bo is out throwing a ball and we see him doing something that we know isn't the best way to do that, We give gentle correction or we emulate how to do it correctly, but we don't tend to have that same pattern for our females. And absolutely, if we want them to be comfortable across the board, we need to start start modeling that same behavior. You do this too. We're all meant to do this.
0: So we've had some really good discussion on particularly the prepubescent and the younger athlete, how to get them involved through movement. Stay tuned for part two. We're going to talk more about puberty and onward, looking at loading, looking at recommendations. But before we move on to that, any kind of final thoughts for just how to remember to keep our young girls, especially, involved in sports and get them started at the right time frame?
2: While not treating them exactly like boys, treating them more like boys as far as how we approach things culturally. So make sure that activities are fun for everybody involved, that we are highlighting things that, whether they are typically viewed to be boy things or girl things, if our kids enjoy them, let's make sure that we, as long as they're, they're good um, behaviors and healthy behaviors, let's make sure that we encourage those and, and ask our girls, what's fun? what What, what do you want to do? make them part of the the decision making, and then also give them the cues to help build those fundamentals, just like we would give our little boys the cues to build the fundamentals. We don't need to make our girls ask for how to do things. That is going to put up the barrier. Girls are much more likely to participate when they feel like they are part of the team, part of the club, they feel welcome already, and so let's make them welcome. And then versus our typical boys who feel like they are part of the team because they perform, we have to remember that while bringing our girls in and teaching them how to do things is going to help build skills and keep them involved, that they also don't have the same exact outlook as males either.
0: You bring up a great point there. It really is important. We talk about, as Beck has mentioned, the equity and equality, the end goal for everyone. Want the health, want the participation, want the happiness. But how to help them be successful with that? You touched on some great things to look at the differences to reach where they are for what their needs are, boy or girl. Thank you all for your thoughts and opinions. Love everything we had. And again, stay tuned for part two to talk more about the pubescent and post-pubescent athlete. And as always, with any questions, reach out to us at Motion at spoonerpd.com.
4: Thank you for listening.
2: Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.